I have a brief quiz to begin today's discussion. What well-known film features the following quotes? I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Follow the yellow brick road. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. If you're still searching for the answer, then let me assuage your perplexity and reveal that the film is the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. Furthermore, if you're wondering who I am, then wonder no more. My name is Ben Lavoot, and thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Today, we're taking a look at the tale of Bil'am the Soothsayer, but before that, let's briefly return to The Wizard of Oz. At the end of the movie, a veil lifted before all the characters, and their perspective shifted. The Tin Man found his heart, the Scarecrow his brain, the Lion his courage. Dorothy was told you had the power all along, my dear. One can argue that the biggest realization of all was about the wizard himself. Dorothy discovered that he was not Oz the Great and Powerful, but a pitiful, stammering swindler who was not a great wizard, but a charlatan. It was to her disappointment that Dorothy came to understand that the Wizard of Oz, like his real-life counterpart Professor Marvel, was merely an inconsequential nullity who wasn't good for much of anything. Basically, whereas Dorothy and her Motley Three initially thought that the sorcerer was mighty and awesome and fearsome, their opinion lessened over time until they saw him neither as redoubtable nor formidable, but as a mere fortune teller, which is basically the same thing as a soothsayer. This brings us to Bil'am, and his descent from formidable sorcerer and prophet to silly fortune teller. From Bil'am the son of the destroyer to Bil'am the soothsayer. Bemidbar, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, contains an account of a truly terrifying event that happened to the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness. The nation of Israel was a large group, imposing enough to give the surrounding nations pause. Those other nations, including the nations within the promised land, knew that Israel was favored by a powerful god, and they feared them accordingly. We see this in the forthcoming account of Jericho, where Rahab will tell the spies that the city is terrified of the Israelites. We see that same fear in the Moabites, as recorded in Numbers chapter 22. As the Israelites were approaching Moab, Balak, the son of Tzipor, the king of Moab, was at a loss, for he knew that his army and its traditional defenses were insignificant against the supernatural capabilities of the Israelites and their god. Nevertheless, the king was not one to give up without a fight, nor was he one without creativity. Balak understood that Israel's strength came from their word, that is, their prayers to God and God's answers to those prayers. So thinking outside the box of conventional warfare, Balak supposed that only a stronger word could defeat the Israelites, and the word that King Balak ben Tzipor needed was a curse. Yes, his idea was that if the word of Israel gave them strength, then the country of Moab needed a stronger word, because the Israelites, through their god, waged war in the supernatural. Moab needed a supernatural weapon also. 
the king's solution was to seek out an Aramean from the town of Petor. The sought-after man was Bil'am the son of Beor, and his name is enlightening as to his purpose, because Bil'am basically means to swallow up, as in to consume or devour, and Beor means to destroy. Therefore, the name Bil'am ben Beor quite literally means the devourer, the son of the destroyer. And, as you encounter the story in your Bible, there is a strong chance that his name is given as Balaam. He is no small figure, for Moab's king himself seeks out the man, a powerful sorcerer. In many translations of the Bible, he is referred to as a prophet, which is accurate because he did communicate with the Holy One and relay the Lord's divine will to others. And yet Balaam was very different from the Hebrew prophets of later generations and the Age of Kings. Bil'am the son of Beor was more mystical, known to use magic and divination. He was a warlock, a thaumaturge, and indeed, just the man needed by King Balak, son of Tzipor. The Bible says that Balak sent messengers to Bil'am, asking him to curse the approaching Israelites, who, according to Balak, were poised to spread across the land and devour it, the way that locusts cover and consume a harvest or that oxen eat all the grass of a field until there is no more. In response, Bil'am said that he would need to consult God, and since he usually only heard from God at night, he invited the legates to stay until morning and receive his answer then. That night, God came to Bil'am and told him not to curse the Israelites whom the Lord had blessed. So in the morning, Bil'am declined the king's offer and sent the messengers back with that reply. Undeterred, King Balak legated once more and sent messengers to Bil'am, offering to reward him handsomely if he would but curse the approaching Israelites on the king's behalf. But what could Bil'am do? He told the new messengers that no emolument, however grand, not even the king's own palace full of gold and silver, could remove the fact that Bil'am did not have the power to defy God's authority, that if God had said not to pronounce a curse, then pronounce a curse he simply could not. Nevertheless, Bilam invited the messengers to stay the night so that he could receive guidance from God. That night, the Lord told Bilam to go with the king's men, but to do only what the Lord would instruct. So in the morning, Bilam mounted a she-donkey and departed with the king's messengers. As we move into this next part of the tale, we need to do justice to the Bible and acknowledge its humor contained throughout. Although it can be difficult to suppose what one culture finds funny, even more so when those cultures are quite removed from one's own. For example, the time and place in which Moses and Bil'am lived, the following piece of scripture is undeniably satirical, worthy of any Greek comedy or 21st century skit. This latter part of the story is about an ass and a prophet and it's your call which is which. Bil'am the sorcerer mounted his donkey and set out from Pethor to meet King Balak. But lo, blocking the road was a messenger from God. Now Bil'am could not see the messenger. However, the she-ass he was riding could. So the donkey turned off the road, but Bil'am struck the beast, guided it back to the road, and then continued on. Farther along, as the route passed between two fences, 
Again, the Lord's messenger blocked the path, but Bil'am did not see. The she-ass, though, as before, did see the messenger and tried to turn aside. In doing so, Bil'am's foot was crushed against the fence, and in his anger, he struck the donkey again. A third time, the messenger blocked the way, this time as the road came to a narrow pass. The donkey, seeing the messenger, who Bil'am still did not see, halted and crouched down, having no shoulder either to the right or on the left. Bil'am's anger flared again and, for the third time, struck his mount with his staff. Just then, God opened the donkey's mouth and she said, Bil'am, what have I done to you that you have hit me three times now? The talking animal not giving him the least bit of hesitation, Bil'am roared, You are being capricious with me, and if I had my sword with me, I would have killed you by now. Bil'am rebutted the she-donkey, Am I not your donkey, whom you have ridden for a long time? Have I ever been unfaithful to you? No, he admitted. Just then, God revealed the messenger to Bil'am, and Bil'am immediately bowed low to the ground. The messenger, who was holding a sword, said, With the way you came charging down this road, had your she-donkey not turned you to the side, it would have been I who would have killed you. And yet you threatened to kill your own mount, but know that it was she who saved you. I see, said Bilam, that I have sinned against God. Instead of continue with the king's men, I will turn back. No, the messenger told him, continue on, but remember. You are not to listen to the king, but do only what God tells you to do. Here, the reader is invited to reflect. Who is the one who sees God? And who is the unruly brute? Who is the prophet? And who is the ass? Despite the fearsome character Bil'am will prove to be as the story progresses, in keeping with the lowering of opinion that we talked about at the start of this episode, from sorcerer to soothsayer, from formidable to funny, we note that even as this narrative was put to paper, its authors could not help but cast Bil'am as the butt of a joke. What happened next, though, would have been anything but funny at the time. Presently, Bil'am arrived at his destination and greeted Balak, son of Tsipor and king of Moab, at daybreak, and they went up to a place called the Heights of Baal, for that was the place from which Bil'am would perform his hired task of cursing the Israelites. The heights of Baal likely contained a shrine or other votive object dedicated to the place's eponymous deity, Baal. But while this is not known for sure, the Bible does mention how from the heights, Bil'am could see the entirety of the Israelites, because in that culture, one must see the victim to pronounce a curse. I admit that I am unfamiliar with the terrain at which these events took place but I imagine that the heights of Baal sit atop a high point at the edge of a canyon, in which, perhaps, the itinerant people of God were traveling slowly but steadily toward Moab. I wonder what Bil'am looked like, and I wonder what tokens he used to perform the curse. On the heights of Baal, Bil'am instructed the attendants to construct seven offering sites and to offer a bull and a ram on each one. Then, he proceeded to the edge. I picture in my mind something like the scene from the Fellowship of the Ring, where Saruman stood atop the Orthanc of Isengard, and with great stentorian bellows, pronounced the magic to break apart the mountain, 
on which Frodo and the Fellowship stood. I picture the Israelites passing through a wide canyon, with tall, steep walls, and, in an otherwise silent place, suddenly a deep voice begins to call. The acoustics make it difficult to place the source, and for each person it sounds like the caller is right there beside him. A wave of pointing fingers washes over the throng of people as they locate the source of the oraton booming. It is a man, above them, at the edge of the canyon, with his arms outstretched toward the Israelites. He is fearsomely ornamented and wearing the garb of an unholy magician. What does he say? As translated by Everett Fox, his words were, From Aram, Balak led me. Moab's king from the hills of Kadem. Go, damn Israel for me. Go execrate the sons of Jacob. How shall I revile him whom God has not reviled? How shall I curse him whom God has not cursed? Indeed, from the top of this crag I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Here a people alone in security it dwells. Among the nations it does not need to come to reckoning. Who can measure the dust of Jacob? or number the dust clouds of Israel. May I die the death of the upright. May my future be like his. Bil'am withdrew from the edge and relayed his words to Balak, who was beside himself. He could scarcely believe that the man he had hired to curse the Israelites had instead pronounced a blessing on them. But Bil'am reminded him, Did I not tell you I can only say what God has told me to say? Upset, but still trying to salvage the situation, Balak proposed that they relocate to another spot, from which only some of the Israelites would be visible. From there, they planned to try again. Remember that Bilam needed to view the entirety of the nation to curse them effectively, and Balak knew this, so the goal now became a partial fix. That is, perhaps the God of Israel was protecting the entire group, but a portion of the group might be somewhat unprotected. Indeed, some cursing is better than no cursing. So Bil'am and Balak departed the heights of Baal and went to another high point called the Field of Watchmen, for the astrologers used it to observe the night sky. At the Field of Watchmen, Bil'am and the witnesses carried out the same tasks they had at the heights of Baal. Seven offering sites were constructed, and upon each one were a bull and ram offered. Then, as before, Bil'am stepped out to the edge. Back on the canyon floor, the Israelites were probably still shell-shocked from what they had experienced. Who was that sorcerer that looked like he was there to pronounce evil? It was a terrifying sight to behold, but... Did I hear correctly? Did he not curse, but bless, yes, bless us? It was probably only an hour or two since the strange scene when... Once again, their blood ran cold at the sound of the resounding voice. From some unseen spot atop the canyon's edge, it began. Arise, Balak, and hearken. Bil'am proceeded once again to belittle King Balak and bless and elevate the Israelites before him. At the conclusion of this second blessing, much longer than the first, the Israelites were probably unsure what to think. Clearly something beyond their comprehension, some Divine matter was at work there, that upon the canyon's edge was a sorcerer who was blessing them and prophesying good things. They could only wonder at the supernatural events unfolding around them. Meanwhile, 
back atop the field of watchmen. Bil'am returned to Balak and told the king what he had done. The king was dismayed and livid, and he implored the sorcerer, Bil'am, what are you doing to me? I hired you to curse these people, but if you won't do that, then for God's sake don't bless them. But Bil'am replied, I've told you this already. I must say what God commands me to say. I can do only that. Still undeterred, Balak wanted them to try a third time. At another high vantage point, this one unnamed, Balam once more ordered that seven offering sites be built, and that on each one a bull and a ram be offered. When, this third time, Balaam approached the place from which he would attempt to curse the Israelites, the Bible says that the Spirit of God fell upon him, and once again, from the mouth of Balaam's son of Beor, blessings fell upon Israel. When Bil'am completed the blessing, King Balak was again baffled by what Bil'am had done, and the king reneged the honor and remuneration that he had offered as payment. Bil'am presumably understood this, but he only reminded Balak, I told you that I must speak that which God instructs me to speak. Did I not tell you that even for all your silver and gold, I could not violate God's command? Here now I will return to my home. But let me tell you what to expect of these people entering your land. Thus says Bil'am son of Beor, a man whose eyes are open, a man who hears God's voice, who knows about divine things, who envisions the Almighty, who is bowed low but whose eyes are open. I see it, not now, not soon, but I see it, that a star will go forth from Jacob, a meteor from Israel, that will crush Moab and its children, and its neighbors, and all these. What is left will be a possession for a ruler that will come from Jacob. Great nations now will be oblivion then. Who can remain who God has condemned? Even the fiercest nations now will fall. At these words, Bil'am and Balak parted ways. One would think that after having blessed them thrice, the Israelites wouldn't have had a problem with Bilam. One would think that the Israelites would have lifted him up as something like the righteous among the Gentiles, who knew God even though he wasn't from Jacob's family, who supported the underdog Israelites when everyone else sought their destruction. But one would be wrong in thinking that. There are several reasons that the Israelites looked down upon Bil'am, the son of Beor. For one, despite issuing blessings from three high points, he was still an Aramean sorcerer who was in deep violation of God's covenant with Israel, so they could never accept someone like Bil'am. But even more so, the Israelites blamed Bil'am for much of their descent into sin that accompanied their conquest of the Promised Land. The Israelites held that Bil'am taught Balak how to lead the people away from God. Indeed, even as the New Testament books were written more than a thousand years into the future, Bil'am was still blamed, and considered something of a paragon of evil, the antithesis of godliness, in the same way that the nation of Babylon was regarded. The second letter of Peter says that, 
those who forsook the right way of God went astray to follow Bil'am the son of Beor, who loved wickedness. And the book of John's Revelation, the last book of the Bible, says that there are those who hold to the ways of Bil'am, who taught Balak how to ensnare the Israelites with sin and idol worship and sexual immorality. Thus, Bil'am became something of an archetype for things opposed to God, for ways of wickedness. And even though he pronounced blessings on Israel, he was not spared the sword when they finally came into the promised land. The 31st chapter of Numbers says that the Israelites killed many, including Bil'am son of Beor, who they killed with the sword. Now, however, let us consider a very similar verse. Whereas what we just heard was Numbers 31.8, the following is Joshua 13.22, which comes later in Israelite history. God had given the territory to the tribes of Israel, and Bil'am the son of Beor, the soothsayer, the children of Israel killed with the sword, in addition to their slain. Did you catch it? The difference in how Bil'am was described, from Numbers to Joshua. Whereas both verses refer to him as Bil'am son of Beor, the later book of Joshua adds the epithet soothsayer, kasam in Hebrew, that is, a diviner, but with a pejorative connotation. This introduction, Bil'am ben Beor Hakasem, the introduction of the epithet Kasam, is an insightful detail of the text. Although translated into English many different ways, most attempts to maintain the precise intent render the word as soothsayer. Sooth is a somewhat archaic synonym for truth. Thus, a soothsayer is a truth-teller of sorts which we might more contemporarily describe as a fortune-teller, which unlike a prophet or sorcerer, a soothsayer is an ersatz, more so low-level, quasi-mystical, not-to-be-taken-too-seriously type of person. Any way you slice it, Kassam is an inglorious title. Therefore, to call Bil'am a soothsayer was belittling the man he was, a sign of disrespect and an attempt to derogate his memory. It is as if a fictional knight, call him Sir James, son of John, who was in his day feared throughout the land, undefeated in battle, menacing of presence, but who 100 years later people remembered as, who? Are you talking about Jim, who used to run around with a sword? Or if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, think about the exchange where Thor proudly proclaims, I am the god of thunder, to which Jeff Goldblum remarks, Wow, I didn't see any thunder, but was that like sparkles? Forsooth, a synonym of truly. Forsooth, the fact of the matter is that, in his day, Bilam probably was a fearsome sorcerer. From among all his countrymen, King Balak sought out Bilam to curse his enemies. And even after not once, not twice, but three times disobeying the king and blessing the Israelites, the king did not impose a kingly punishment. No, Bilam was neither killed, nor jailed, nor mutilated, nor even fined as one might expect. Indeed, the king of Moab expressed his strong displeasure with Bilam's performance, and withheld compensation. Could this mere slap on the wrist be because the power and mysticism of Bilam, prophet and son of the destroyer, 
placed him beyond the realm of normal men. And yet, when Joshua chapter 13 was put to paper, looking back, the Israelites must have said, Oh, I remember Bilam, the soothsayer, right? That wacky character who dabbled in magic and such. From the Old Testament through to the New, Bilam is called Bilam son of Beor. Never but this once in Joshua does he get an epithet, and when he is qualified, it is by the word Kassam, soothsayer, not sorcerer, nor warlock, nor prophet, nor fearful magician, but soothsayer. By that one description, one word, five Hebrew letters, Hakasem, the Israelites took the memory of their fearsome enemy and castrated it. They made Bil'am the son of the destroyer impotent. It is as if they re-recorded all of Darth Vader's lines through a helium balloon. And what does it mean to do that? Why did they retrospectively emasculate their enemy? For the Israelites, it meant that they had arrived at a place wherein they no longer feared Bil'am ben Beor. They no longer held him in awe, nor allowed him to hold sway over them. Bil'am? No, he wasn't so scary. He was just a silly fortune teller. I know his kind, just another soothsayer, a feeble old man behind the curtain. Isn't it strange how time and space warp perspectives? How something major in its day can be looked back upon and brushed aside as minor? What was probably terrifying as it happened was, in time, viewed by the Israelites as less severe, dare we suppose, not too bad? Perhaps part of this retconning is indeed the power of space and time, but I think that a larger share of it is due to God, and the realization over time that God was larger than the threat. Bil'am ben Beor stepped out to the edge to execrate Israel, but God did not let him. God turned those curses into blessings. At the time they may have asked, is our God powerful enough to do this? But as days and years passed, they said, Psh, Bilam was no match for our God. No one is. Bilam thought he was high and mighty, but God revealed him as a nobody, a pawn, a worm, nothing but a mere soothsayer. Bilam ben Beor Hakasem? Ha! <laughs> I'm not scared of him. Paul might phrase it like this. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? And the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, Thus says the Lord, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every voice that rises up to judge you, you will condemn it. For this is the heritage of God's faithful people, and their righteousness is of me. So what do we learn from Bil'am the soothsayer? we are reminded of a truth that is all too easily forgotten. The truth that God is bigger. Whether it is a sorcerer standing atop the heights of Baal, or something less personified, maybe your job or your health, or maybe existential and ideological questions about why the world works the way it does, and its purpose, and our purposes, yours and mine. Do you believe that God is bigger? Do you know it? Perhaps we might ask, do you believe that Jesus can overcome even death itself, 
and forgive even your sin. I hope that we are able to follow the examples of so many who have come before us, believing that our God is a capable God. Perhaps we will even arrive at some point of prolepsis and believe that God is bigger than our problems even before we arrive at the other side of them. When you pass through a canyon, which you surely have and surely will again, and look up and see the terrible silhouette of Bil'am ben Be'or, remind yourself that although he is feared throughout the land, against you, he is but a soothsayer. Because if God is with you, then what adversary could possibly stand against you? Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. My name is Ben Laboot, and if you find value in this podcast, then I encourage you to share it with your family, friends, neighbors, and anyone you think might benefit from it. Other ways that you can help us reach a broader audience are to subscribe to the podcast, give it a like or positive review, and follow us on Facebook and or Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. Remember also to check out blogs, episodes, and more online at storiesofsymmetry.com. As always, it has been my pleasure to explore with you the stories that unite us all. Join again for the next episode, which will be out in two weeks. Go with God. Go in peace. <laughs>